Our scripture this morning is John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to that passage, John chapter 12 and uh, verse 12, if you haven't uh, done that already. And uh, I'm pleased to tell you that a miracle happened this morning in the uh, 8 o'clock service. It was almost full. So uh, it was wonderful. And uh, there were children there. I mean, it was unbelievable. So let me just uh, thank the Lord for that. I mean, to get folks in a church to change how they worship on Sunday, that, that's like a serious work of the Spirit. I think revival's breaking out. So thank you. And I trust that when you came to church this morning, you drove in and the chant in your car was, Gravel is Godly. Yes, amen. Very good. If you have no idea what we're talking about, you're a first-time visitor. We're so glad you're here today. And uh, this is your service, and some folks made room and went to a different service, so you could have a spot today. So we're glad you're here. Welcome our friends in Columbus, uh, and also the folks in worship, too. We're so glad that we have a chance to be around God's Word today. So uh, let's uh, ask the Lord to uh, bless our time together. Lord, our hearts are desperately wicked, and we don't even know it. We go about our daily life, and we think we're okay. And then something happens, and it reminds us that our heart, as the hymn writer said, is prone to wander. It is too easy for our hearts one moment to be able to confess and worship that There's no one else on earth that we desire besides you. And then a few hours later to deny you in our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, our looks. Our heart is a treason factory. And so would you give us grace today to see what frankly, Lord, we don't like to see very often. And that's the reality of what our hearts are really like. Thank you for your word that graciously but firmly becomes a plumb line so we can test ourselves, we can see what we're like. And I I pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would open the eyes of religious lost people. Pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of complacent saved people. I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of some who've come today in desperation who today need to know that you are the one who can really change what they want. And so we ask you to do this. Be our teacher, O Holy Spirit. Use your word. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At a tomb on the outskirts of Bethany, about two miles south of Jerusalem, are gathered Jesus, Mary, Martha, and a fairly significant group of people. They're gathered around this tomb. It's sealed with a stone, and inside the tomb is a man named Lazarus. He was a friend of Jesus. Four days ago, he died. They had sent word, Mary and Martha, to Jesus, asking for the teacher to come and to help them, and Jesus decided to stay put. When Jesus arrived on the scene, Mary and Martha ran to him and said, Lord, if you just had come, our brother wouldn't have died. They accused Jesus of being late, but Jesus was right on time. As he stood with that crowd, Mary and Martha, he looked at the tomb and ordered, Roll the stone back. Roll the stone away. And one of the women said to him, Lord, he's been dead four days. It's going to stink. And still they obeyed his orders, and he rolled the stone away. Jesus then prayed, asked the Father to hear him, even though he knew the Father would hear him, he prayed it for their benefit, and then looked into the dark chasm of that tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth! And everybody waited to see what was going to happen. And suddenly, out of the dark chasm of that tomb, somebody saw movement. Could it be? And as they looked, the figure came closer and closer to the front of the tomb, and there they saw him, standing in the mouth of that tomb, and moving forward was a man wrapped in all sorts of clothes, little strips of cloth woven all the way around his, his head, his hands, his feet, his face. He stopped at the edge of the entrance of the tomb, and someone ran to him and unwrapped the, the, the cloth around his face, and they turned and said, It's Lazarus! He's alive! And the crowd just couldn't believe what they had seen. Jesus had just raised a four-day dead man from the grave. And immediately, two men ran as fast as they could on the street, on the road that went back to Jerusalem. Jesus had just raised a dead man. Jesus had just taken a man who was four days dead and called him forth out of the tomb. And in their mind, there's nothing that he couldn't do. The effect of that resurrection of Lazarus was that the leaders of the Sanhedrin called for an emergency meeting. Can you imagine? The two men run from Bethany who come in. They said, he just raised somebody from the dead. His name's Lazarus. He's alive. And there's a group of people that are just jumping and shouting, Jesus just raised somebody from the grave. And they called an emergency session. The book of John records what happened in that session. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What Caiaphas didn't know is he was speaking prophetically. 
Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And then look at verse 53. It says, and so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What's going on here? Well, part of the reason why the religious leaders were so nervous was because Lazarus' resurrection and a feast that Jesus was a part of at Mary and Martha's house that Lazarus attended was on the cusp of the Passover. One of three festivals that were celebrated throughout the Jewish calendar year. Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the three feasts. And the Jews from all over the nation of Israel and in surrounding countries would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And pretty soon the city would be filled with people from all over the known world. In fact, Josephus, an early church historian, estimates that the crowds during Passover could exceed 2.5 million people. So it's not very convenient that Jesus did his greatest miracle just before this event. As 2.5 million people are coming into the city of Jerusalem. Talk about Jesus was buzzing in the air. There was a frenzy around him. Look at John chapter 11 verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus. They'd heard about this great miracle, this resurrection of Lazarus. They're looking for Jesus and they're saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he not come to the feast at all? So understand the context. They got this resurrection that's happened. The Pharisees and Sadducees are nervous because there's nothing that's going to stop them. Now you got 2.5 million people coming into the city and everyone in the, in the city of Jerusalem is saying, is he going to come? Is he going to come to Jerusalem? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Do you see the tension? Lazarus was just raised from the dead. A major festival is taking place. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to pour into Jerusalem. Talk about Jesus is spreading. The religious leaders are feeling very nervous. Jesus is no longer in hiding. He's about to enter Jerusalem and he's approaching his last week of his life. This is the setting, this is the setting for Palm Sunday. Not just some celebration, not just some people crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is a tense moment. This is is a moment when revolts happen. This is a moment when crowds get out of control and people die. This is a moment when people lose their power. This is a moment when weird things happen. Nations are changed. Rulers are overthrown. This is a defining moment. But it's also a tragic moment. You see, this moment in the life of Jesus tells us a lot about Him but it also tells us a lot about people. You see, this is more than just a story and more than just a narrative. This is part of the path of Jesus' trip to the cross. It's Tuesday. He'll die on Friday. But no one knows that. So for all the fanfare, all the cheering, all the waving of the palm branches, all the enthusiasm, all the hoopla, this moment in Jesus' life is actually a tragedy. 
It shows how different, I mean radically different, Jesus' agenda is from that of people's agenda. And what we see in the Palm Sunday event or the triumphal entry of Jesus is how easy, how tragically easy it is for human beings to cheer for a king who they think is going to give them what they want and then to see how quickly it all can change when they realize, oh, he's not going to give us what we want. Let's kill him. Let's say, crucify him. Let's say, I don't know that man. I don't know that man. I don't know that man. So the triumphal entry of Jesus is, is, a, is a tragedy of how quickly the human heart, how quickly fickle human hearts can shift from great songs of worship on Sunday to terrible. Abandonment in your heart, in your mind, through your eyes, through your mouth, through your actions. It can happen like that. So this passage is a warning that we ought to beware of following Jesus with our agenda. Because that doesn't usually work real well. It doesn't work well if you're a disciple. It doesn't work well if you're a crowd. And it certainly doesn't work well. If you claim to be a follower of God and you're a religious leader who ends up killing the Son of God. So there's three groups of people that I want just to take a look at this morning. The first is the crowds. The second are the disciples. The third are the religious rulers. And we're going to see what they're thinking. Contrast that with what Jesus is thinking. And then to figure out, so what do we learn from this Palm Sunday event about Jesus and about our own hearts. What, what warnings do we need to receive from Palm Sunday? Well, first, what were the people thinking? Let's take a look first at the issue of the crowds. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, okay, that's the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what do they do? They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This moment, folks, is pregnant with symbolism and meaning. When a general in the Roman army came back from a great victory, if he had conquered in a foreign country, if he had killed at least 5,000 people, and if he had taken land for the Roman Empire, he was given what was called a triumphal entry. He was able to uh, take all of his forces, line them up, all the prisoners, the spoils of war, and he was able, as that general, to ride on a stallion in front of them all and come into the city with great fanfare. The last time that we've seen this as a nation was after the Gulf War. In New York City, with Storman Norman Schwarzkopf, remember him? And George Herbert Walker Bush, there, leading the processional, ticker tape parade. That's what this is, a, a Roman processional. And so what's happening here has some similar dynamics to it. Except that Jesus is riding a donkey. They, they took up palm branches. It's not like they just picked those up from the street. Palm branches weren't usually around Jerusalem. They had to bring those from someplace else. That palm branch was a symbol of national pride and victory. 
When the temple was dedicated in 164 B.C., the people waved palm branches when that temple was finally built under Herod's reign. When a ruler named Simon achieved a limited independence for Israel in 141 B.C., the people took up palm branches and waved them. When Rome oppressed the nation of Israel years after Jesus' death, they celebrated their oppression of the people and mocked them by developing coins with a Jewish palm branch on the back signifying the date that they crushed the Jews. In Revelation 7-9, as people stand before the throne, they say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Guess what they hold when they say those things? Palm branches. A palm branch was a symbol of national pride. It's not just a flower you pick up or an article of foliage on the ground. It's It's a symbol of victory, of liberation. The sense of we are God's people and we will not be oppressed. So you wave a palm branch in the air. They're quoting Psalm 118, 25. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's a prayer that God would fight for His people once again. If you trace out the psalm, you'll see that the crowd's expectation was that Jesus was going to deliver them like God had delivered His people throughout the years. And their belief was that Jesus was going to come and be their national deliverer. You see, Rome was occupying Jerusalem, surrounding regions... They had come in and set up little kings and authorities and little regions. It was a, an occupying force. Not a great place to be assigned if you were a Roman soldier. Nobody wanted them there. And the people saying Hosanna believed that one day Jesus was going to be able to relieve the oppression of Rome from them. They heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. They heard about it from first-hand people who were witnessing, uh, who had witnessed it, who were there around that moment of the triumphal entry. And the masses gathered to see this powerful teacher. If he could raise them from the dead, Rome was nothing. And so the crowds believed that Jesus was going to bring them relief. Relief from Rome and the taxes and the tyranny and the oppression. And finally, the pride of their their national identity could be restored again. Hosanna! God save even the king of Israel. They're calling for revolt. So what about the disciples? Hmm. The disciples... John chapter 12 and verse 14. Find a young donkey. Bring it to Jesus, according to another passage. And the text goes on, it says, Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then the text says, His disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. So that means that everything that's happening right here in this text, the disciples don't understand what's happening. So they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, our guy's got a lot of power. (laughs) They're thinking, we signed on the right ticket. They're thinking, if He's king, guess what we are? We're like vice kings, vice regents. We're we're on the right political track. And they're thinking about honor and esteem and authority and position. How do we know this? 
Well, because it's all over the place, both before and after the triumphal entry of Jesus. Matthew 20, for instance, verse 20, tells us that just before the triumphal entry of Jesus, James and John's mom shows up. Bad day for James and John. Bad day. Because the mom shows up and she says, "Um, can can I ask you something, Jesus? When you go into your kingdom, can, can my son sit on your right and on your left? And some of the texts tell us that the disciples heard it and they were incensed. Yeah, in, in my world, which I grew up in, like in the locker room that I hung out, it'd be like this. What's your mom doing here, right? Would you get your mom out of here, right? So they're upset with them. What's your mom doing here? She's asking for this. Get your mom out of here. So they're arguing. Then if you look later on, after the triumphal entry in passages like Luke 22, you'll find that the disciples are caught arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. I mean, can you imagine let alone the shame of having this recorded in the Bible. I mean, as they're sitting around, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I, I'm the greatest. He loves me the most. I'm the beloved disciple. Well, I'm the one who talks so well, says Peter, right? Who's going to be the greatest? I'm going to be the greatest. And Jesus catches them in this. We know from John 13, that the disciples had no idea that Jesus was going to die, or they had, they had no idea how weak they are. Peter even suggests, I will lay down my life for you. Only to have Jesus say, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You see, the problem is that the disciples miss the real purpose of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Peter, in fact, so misunderstands Jesus' mission, even after the triumphal entry, that when Jesus is arrested, Peter sees Jesus' arrest as a threat to the plan for Christ to exalt himself as king. So Peter draws a sword and assaults the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. I mean, he completely misses it and physically attacks somebody. The tragic passage of all is Matthew 27, 56, where it tells us that at the arrest of Jesus, at the arrest of Jesus, after the cutting off of the ear, all of them left him and fled. All of these guys who said, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom, I will never leave you, we will be right there at your side, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus was arrested and they all fled. And then, as you know, Matthew 27, 69 tells us that Peter, fulfilling Jesus' prophetic word, denies Jesus three times. So the disciples thought that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. The, the crowds thought he was going to relieve them from the oppression of Rome. The crowds thought this so much so that they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then when it was clear that he wasn't going to be able to do that, they said, crucify him. In fact, choosing a murderer over him. The disciples, though, rather than being complicit with the crucifixion of Christ, they just abandon him and they go from, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, to I don't know him. I don't know him. And when Jesus couldn't give the disciples what they wanted, they abandoned him. So they think, we're going to be people of authority, people of position, people of influence. Our man can raise people from the dead. There's nothing that can stop us. And when Jesus doesn't give them what they want, in honor, they choose to run. Last group, religious rulers. 
Look at verse 19 of John chapter 12. What do the religious rulers want? Here's what they want. They want to retain their power. They want security. And Jesus threatened it. Verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They, they saw the event of the triumphal entry of Jesus. They saw the crowds. They saw the enthusiasm. They, they saw the reality of Christ's power with the resurrection. And they say to one another, Look, the world has gone after him. We are losing. We're losing. And worse, they believed that if they let it go, he would destroy everything. In the passage we read at the beginning, John 11, verse 48. Look at that passage a minute, will you? John eleven forty eight. We get a hint as to what's going on inside of their minds and hearts from that passage. It says this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what they think is, Jesus is going to create a revolt. And it'll be so bad that the Romans will come in and they will once and for all crush us. They'll tear down the temple. They'll they'll bring it to ruins like people in previous days had done. And they were just a hair's breadth away from Rome completely decimating our nation. And so in their minds, and understand where they're coming from, in their minds they think that Jesus is going to destroy God's people. And so... They had to save Israel from Jesus. How ironic is that? Here are the religious leaders longing for the Messiah. And when He shows up and when He comes, they believe they have to save the nation from Him. And the religious leaders thought that they were doing God's bidding. They thought that they were doing God's work, but the tragic thing is they were actually destroying it. They they thought that Jesus was a threat when He really was their Savior. They knew the Scriptures, but the crazy thing is they missed the One who was promised. It's a scary thing to be religious. Because you can convince yourself that you are doing God's work when you're actually not. A Pharisee was the kind of guy that you wanted your daughter to marry. He was a guy of upper class citizenship. He was well educated. He was religious. He was moral. He had all of the trappings of what a good citizen of Israel was. And yet in the midst of all the things that were so good about them, they missed the heart of what the people of God were supposed to be. And in the end, what happened is that Jesus threatened their religion. They wanted security, and when Jesus threatened it, they killed him. Think of that. The most religious people in the day were conniving and scheming and planting how to kill someone so that they could protect the nation and not lose what it meant to be God's people. So, the religious leaders wanted security, The disciples wanted honor, and the crowds wanted relief. So what's Jesus thinking? Well, if you were to look on a little bit further in John chapter 12, you'd see. You see, what's happening here is that Jesus is operating in categories that are unfamiliar to human beings. He's on a completely different plane 
They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, God save. And what they don't know is Jesus is coming to save them in a way they've never anticipated before. Which is just the way that God often works, isn't it? That just when you think you've got him figured out, something happens and he blows apart the categories in your mind of how he's going to work and what he's going to do. And what we see here is that Jesus, in the midst of this season, says in John chapter 12 to a group of Gentiles, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's a strange thing to say from a guy who just rode in on a triumphal entry. Unless a grain of wheat falls on the earth and dies, it remains alone, but it bears much fruit. And then look at John 12, 25. Whoever loves this life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I have to wonder if the disciples were like, Jesus, you have to work on your language a little bit. You've got to change the things that you're saying. This is not encouraging people to sign up. Okay, You're hurting our enrollment with these words. What do you mean, he who loves his life loses it? It sounds like you like are going to die. What they don't know is that Jesus' death was the end game to be able to set them free from what they really needed, even though they thought they knew what they really wanted. The crowds wanted relief, and Jesus was going to bring them relief, but he was going to bring them relief from a greater and more oppressive enemy than they had ever known, their own sin. The disciples wanted positions of honor and greatness, and yet Jesus was calling them to give up their lives. This is the backwardness of what it means to follow Jesus. If you save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you gain it. If you want to be first, be last. The last are first. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Most of everything in life, as we think about it, human beings, is exactly backwards to the way that Jesus works. And the religious rulers thought that they were doing God's will, trying to protect the nation, and in the reality... Of the moment, what they really were doing was the bidding of Satan, and they killed the Son of God. They killed the one who had come to rescue them. How different is Jesus' agenda for us as people? The tragedy of the triumphal entry is that the chanting crowds, the devoted disciples, and the religious rulers are dead wrong. Everybody in the triumphal entry is wrong because they all wanted something. Thus my title, blessed is he who comes to give me what I want. And that's how human beings often treat Jesus. Blessed is he who comes to give me what I want. And when Jesus doesn't give us exactly what we want, we say, oh, just crucify him, or I'm going to abandon him, or worse. Let's find a way to marginalize this guy and maybe even kill him. So the crowds discarded him, the disciples abandoned him, and the religious rulers murdered him, all because Jesus threatened what they wanted. So here's my question. So what do I want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? Why did you come today? What, what, what is it that's going on inside of your... Why, why did you come? Maybe you're a spouse of a, of a believing member of our church, and you came because you're just trying to figure out what this church thing is all about. So you just, you came. Great. We're glad. But what do you want? want Peace in my marriage. I want my wife to be happy. I don't want her to ask me to go to church again. 
Maybe you're a parent with a disobedient child and you just want help to know how to be able to raise a child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Maybe you're a spouse who's working through an adulterous relationship on the part of your spouse and you just want for healing to take place in your marriage. Or maybe you're a single adult and you're trying to figure out how to do life on your own in a career, in a marketplace, and sometimes it just feels so incredibly lonely. So you come here because you just need some help. And all of those things might be good things initially, but when those things become the preeminent reason why we come to Jesus, we've got a problem. Do you think that you and I would have been any different if we had been there? Do you think that you would have been different than the crowds? Saying, Hosanna, and then crucify him. Do you think that you would have been the one disciple who didn't abandon him? Do you think that you would have been the one religious leader to stand up and say, this is wrong, we can't kill this guy, who cares about the nation? You know as well as I do that we all would have simply gone along with the crowd in one of those three buckets. And that's why this is so tragic. Because what we see in John 12 is a horrible mirror about our own hearts. We know how fickle our hearts are. We know. We know how quick our allegiance can shift. So let me give you a few cautions. As I looked at this text and looked at my own heart, this was not a fun passage to study. Everywhere I turned, I saw me. A few cautions. Number one, beware of an overconfident heart. I'm struck here with the crass overconfidence of the disciples who think they know Jesus' plan and they think they know their own hearts. And they don't know either. (laughs) They don't know God's plan and they don't know their own hearts. And they're filled with overconfidence. Overconfidence because they think they know and all it will take is just a little circumstantial change and their hearts will be sunk. They, They can flip their allegiance. They'll doubt This last weekend, I um, ordered my first order of mulch at my new house. So I measured and everything else, exactly how much I needed, figured out how to calculate cubic yards. And uh, my wife said to me, so do you think you got the order right? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I did. And I measured it twice, and I'm, I'm sure that it's, it's right. And so the truck showed up Friday afternoon. All the kids come out. We're watching this truck. The guy opens the door on the back. And I'm looking at the most mulch I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) And my kid said to me, do we need that much mulch, Dad? (laughs) About then my wife came out. She's like, wow, that's, that's a lot of mulch. And I'm sitting there going, did I calculate this right? Did I calculate this right? <laughs> so they, they pour it. It's one thing in the truck. Then they pour it out. Right? And it's a, it's a pile of mulch from here to the pulpit, about four and a half feet high. It's like eight yards of mulch. And I'm looking at my wheelbarrow and going, that's like, like 75, I don't know how many wheelbarrow loads it is. That's a lot of work. So we're working all, all cor- uh, the last uh, day and a half. And I'm happy to tell you we're only a half yard short. Yes! Right? <laughs> A half yard left, excuse me, not short, a half yard left. 
But the reality is all it took is a couple kids and my wife saying, are you sure? And my overconfident heart began to crumble. It's a small thing when it comes to mulch. It's a big deal when it comes to Christ. Well, I'll stand for Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll do exactly the right thing in that situation. I would have never been like that. Boy, if that would have been me in that situation, let me tell you what I would have... Oh, let us beware of an overconfident heart. A heart that in the middle of a lunch with a couple of colleagues is someone saying something that they shouldn't be saying, that you just sit there and be quiet and you know somebody should stop this. But your overconfident heart has talked way beyond the reality of where you live. When we hear the words of the disciples and their overconfidence, we're reminded that our hearts are incredibly fickle. We shift allegiances in seconds. In seconds. So let us be ever mindful of overconfident hearts. Number two, beware of belief in a crowd. Beware of belief in a crowd. I'm struck by how quickly a crowd can shift from saying Hosanna to crucify Him. It's stunning to me that these disciples who were so filled with love of Jesus as He's washing their feet in the upper room are the same ones who just a day later flee from Him when He's arrested. It's a good reminder that peer pressure is not a teenage issue. It's a human issue. It is. Crowds can convince us to believe things that we don't, for bad or for good. A bad crowd can make you say things and do things that completely violate who you claim to be. Cause you just to go along with the group, whether it's a word of gossip, whether it's going to a particular place that you would be caught dead with, but you don't want to say no to these folks, whether it's hanging out with a particular crowd and you know what that person said needs to be confronted, but you just clam up because the reality is you're in a crowd, and a crowd has pressure. But there's even something about a good crowd that can be dangerous. You know, there's something dangerous about growing up in a Christian home. Something dangerous about being at church every single Sunday, even though it's really good. You grew up in that environment, you're just around church all your life, you never knew anything different. And there's a really, really good thing to that, but there's also a bad thing about that. And here it is. You can become inoculated to the gospel. You can think because you know scripture verses, or because you can quote particular hymns, or because you know the facts about what the Bible says, that you are in the kingdom. And the reality is there may be thousands of people in the context of churches today, this very hour, who sit in pews and seats just like yours, whose hearts are a million miles away from God, but they do all the right things, hoping that that's really what it means to be a follower of Jesus. A renowned historian on the subject of revival was asked one time, what would be the sign of revival in the United States? His answer was this, millions of church people will be saved. Beware, beloved, of belief in a crowd. Beware of children who can just recite the right answers, who know the right things to say, who say, my selfishness and my pride, that's the problem, who inside don't really understand or get it. Beware of belief in a crowd because it can pull you the wrong direction or cause you to think you're safe when you're really not. Third, beware of making Jesus your lackey. 
Beware of making Jesus your lackey. You know what the word lackey means? It's like the word servant, but it's more loaded. It's got more oomph to it. Lackey. Here's here's the lackey is. um, Savannah wants daddy to be her lackey. She's watching a movie the other day, and she's sitting there sucking her thumb, and she says, Daddy? I said, yeah, honey. Would you get my glinkly? Which is her blanklet, her blankie. And I said, no, it's, I don't want to get your blanket. You go get it. She's sucking her thumb watching the show. She goes, no, you go get it, Daddy. And I said, honey, I'm not getting your blanket. She goes, Daddy, it's on the bed. Go get it. And I was like, who are you talking to? I was like, what in the world? We went from the terrible twos like the demonic threes. What happened here? I said, I'm not going to get your blanket. She said, Daddy, go get my blanket. I'm not getting your blanket. Go ask your mom. I'm not getting it, right? We want what we want. Beware of making Jesus your lackey. Sometimes we come to Jesus because of our secondary needs, like a restored marriage or better kids, happiness, a better job, fixing up our finances, a changed spouse or a drug-free life. And some of those things cause desperation that bring us into the environment of the kingdom. And all those things can be fixed by Jesus. But listen to me, they are the fruit of surrendering to Christ and saying to Him, I need you more than I need what you can give me. Let us beware of coming to Jesus like the rich young ruler with an agenda. What must I do to be righteous? And when Jesus tells us, we say, yeah, not that. Fourth, beware of confusing your agenda with God's. Something happens here that's just amazing to me. The disciples had this in common with the religious leaders. You know what it was? They confused their agenda with God's agenda. The disciples were convinced that Jesus was bringing in the kingdom, and the religious leaders were convinced that Jesus was destroying the kingdom. They both had their own individual agendas. And therefore, the disciples abandoned Jesus. The religious rulers determined to kill him. And the problem is, is that it's a dangerous thing when you believe your agenda is God's agenda. It's a dangerous thing when you think you're doing God's work and therefore you can do it any way you want. That's why you discipline in anger. Because uh, my kids will obey God. And so therefore you use unrighteous means. That's why you say sinful words so you can win an argument so that conviction will happen in someone else's heart. And so you use sinful things to try and bring conviction. Think about that. And that's what happens. We confuse our agenda with God's agenda. And how do we guard ourselves from that? The only way, friends, is to know the Bible. It's the only way to be able to know what God says and exactly what He wants us to do and to continually order our lives in light of the Word means that we have to know what God's agenda is through the text of Scripture. And so therefore, let us be cautious about assuming that My agenda is indeed what God's agenda is. And let us be reminded that God doesn't need my help to fight His battles. And finally, beware of religion without relationship. As I read through the various narratives in the other gospel, I was shocked over and over by the fact that Jesus' greatest challenge were with the people who were supposed to be the most spiritual. Striking to me. 
the most spiritual people in the world missed him. They missed it. Because Jesus challenges religion. He challenges stayed, tried, and true forms where you simply begin to be in love with the method and miss the master. And what Jesus did throughout the Gospels, and particularly as it relates to the Pharisees, is He challenged their heartless worship of God. You see, the nation of Israel was supposed to be the the one group of people who knew about the one true God and were to love God with all their heart, their soul, and their might. But somehow it became about the form, about the nation, about the people, and they forgot that it was about God. And the result was the most religious people in the day schemed, plotted, bribed, lied, manipulated, and in the end committed murder. And they did it all under the banner of being religious. So let me tell you, religion without relationship is scary. Let us be warned about the dangers of religion without Jesus. Let me warn you about church without a personal relationship with Christ. Let me remind you that Christianity makes no sense, no sense without knowing Jesus. And it may be that today is the first day that you sitting there in this audience realize, you know what, I have religion, but I don't have Jesus. I got all the form, but my heart and Jesus' heart are not together And therefore, genuine conversion comes when you understand that without Jesus and without genuinely believing in Him and coming to Him, everything is just 21st century pharisaicalism. It's just 21st century hypocrisy. While we justify our sinful hearts with religious language. So what do you want from Jesus? What do you want today? Do you want relief? Do you want power? Do you want security? You know what the strange thing is about the triumphal entry? It reminds us that Jesus doesn't always give us what we want. And thank God that He doesn't do that. Thank God He doesn't give us what we want. But the triumphal entry also reminds us that Jesus came to change what we want. It's not just that He doesn't give us what we want, it's that He changes the internal workings of what we want. And it took the cross three days later to accomplish that. To transform us from saying, Blessed is He who comes and gives me what I want, and through the cross then changes and says, Blessed is He who comes to change what I want. Only you could do that. So God, save me from what? From myself. That's what He saves us from, beloved. Thank God He doesn't give us what we want. And instead changes what we should and now do want because of the cross of Christ. Lord Jesus, oh, that you would humble us first under the reality of this text. And secondly, under what we know to be true of our own hearts. Our hearts are massive idol factories. 
And I pray, Lord, today that you would open the eyes of, of our hearts today to see ourselves more clearly, that you would use this time in your word to draw us to your heart tomorrow morning and just to renew our fellowship with you and say, Lord Jesus, I'm here because I want you. Lord, help us to be worshipers, not just askers. To be people who seek you, not just people who want to have our needs met. And Lord, I pray for men and women today who are religious, but today who are lost. Lord, you know who they are, and I believe they know who they are. And I pray that today, Lord, you would call them, draw them to your heart. And then, Lord, for disappointed people who thought that life was going to turn out a certain way, and then it didn't, and they've been angry or frustrated or even just cold, Lord, would you use today's time in the Word to remind them that you've got a plan that they don't fully even understand. As we close this morning, if there's a spiritual need in your life and you need to talk with someone or pray with someone, there'll be some folks up here at the front who are part of our counseling team would love to be able to pray with you. It's their joy to be able just to lift your burden and help you today. They're here to serve you, to point you to Jesus. And if you're a first-time visitor today, what we're just so glad you've come in our coffee talk room is just a place for you to respond just to get to know the church, our people, more importantly, even Jesus a little better. We'd love to have you meet some of our folks to know how we can help you. And so, Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would use your word as a mirror to our hearts and then bring us back to the cross where we find real healing, cleansing, and we find changed hearts and renewed desires. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.